Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. After a life spent in the elite environment of the Formula One pit lane, learning how to win, this podcast aims to bring that elusive, high-performance culture into your daily lives. In this episode, we're talking teamwork. What is it? Why is it so important? And what can we learn from the world's biggest team sport to help us all to become better team players or better team leaders every single day? Welcome to Pit Lane Life Lessons. about how Formula One teams are so successful. Tiny things. You only find those tiny things when you look for them. Of course, there's only one winner in every Grand Prix, so for everybody else, haven't won. So it could be deemed that's, that's a failure. So, teamwork. Well, what is it? Well, it's defined like this. A team is a group of individuals, human or non-human, working together to achieve their goal. In its most simplest form, that's what it is. It's defined by Professor Lee Thompson of the Kellogg School of Management like this. A team is a group of people who are interdependent with respect to information, resources, knowledge and skills who seek to combine their efforts to achieve a common goal. And I think that is it. That is it in a nutshell. It's getting people together to achieve something greater than they might otherwise be able to achieve on their own. Now, I've spent, as I said before, most of my life working in top level motorsport, most of that in the world of Formula One. This huge team of people, a team of people that in the most part is hardly ever seen by the wider world, hardly ever recognised publicly for the incredible achievements they so often are able to bring to bear. Formula One focuses almost all of its attention on a very small number of people within every single team. The driver or drivers, the team principals, maybe if you expand it a little bit more, the pit stop crew might be the most public face of the team side of things. They all do amazing jobs, but they are literally the tip of an enormous iceberg, a huge part of this amazing sport that is so often hidden away under veils of secrecy behind closed doors. I think that's unfair. I think a lot of it's unwarranted. And I hope that some of the things that I've started doing since I left working for a Formula One team is to try and shed some light onto those achievements of those people. Whenever Lewis Hamilton wins a Grand Prix, happens a lot. (laughs) Whenever he does, he steps out the car and one of the first things you ever hear him say is thank you to the team. Thank you to the men and women, both here at the racetrack and back at our factories in the UK. He doesn't do that because he feels a sense of that that's what he has to say, a sense that he should say that, otherwise he'll be vilified for it. He says it because he knows that that is true. He knows he could not have achieved the amazing things that he's achieved in his career without a huge number of people all working away behind the scenes to give him the opportunity to achieve those goals and dreams. He stands, as I record this, as statistically the greatest Formula One driver in the history of the sport. He gets a huge chunk of those accolades. Rightly so, he deserves a lot of them, but he could not have done it on his own. I'm very proud to say that when he began his career and when he won his first world championship, 
I was there. I was one of his teammates. I helped him. I enabled him, along with many other colleagues, to give him the chance to make history in this sport, to set him on his journey in the best possible way. And I feel like we did that. We didn't get it right perfectly uh, all the time. Nobody does. But because of a group of collective, brilliant individuals coming together, of which Lewis was undoubtedly one, we achieved some amazing things. So for this episode, I wanted to look at some of the things that Formula One does incredibly well because teamwork is undoubtedly one of those. One of the things where we are class leading as an industry is bringing skill sets together to create something amazing. I wanted to look at that and find out what we could learn that even though many of us, most of you listening, don't work in Formula One, you're all still part of a team, whether you believe that or not initially. You're part of a team, whether that's within your own family, whether it's in a partnership with your wife or husband or partner, whether you've got children, there's a little team right there. You might be in a team at work. You might be part of a a group within an organisation. Maybe you're leading a group within an organisation. Perhaps you're in a football team or a sports team. A group of friends can be a team. In any of those situations, if you want to get the very best out of your life in whichever part or whichever role I've just described there or others that I didn't cover, if you want to get the best out of that, you can't do that by yourself. You can achieve great things on your own, but you can achieve unbelievably great things when you bring together the power of a group of people all pulling towards that same goal. That's what Formula One can teach us. And when I started to think about recording this episode, I started to think of perhaps some of the stories, the real life examples that I could bring to you that inspired me on my journey and taught me some of the lessons that I absolutely carry forward in my everyday life now, all these years after leaving the Formula One team. And one that really stood out to me, there were a number, and I'll talk you through a few of them, One that definitely stood out as a turning point for me on how I viewed teamwork was my first ever pit stop. Now, I've documented this story a number of times. It's in my book. I've talked about it on various videos and other podcasts. But I give you a shortened version now and talk to to you about what that moment meant for me. My first pit stop was a dream come true. It's all I'd ever dreamt of doing when I got into Formula One. I, I challenged myself to get to Formula One solely because I wanted to be part of a pit stop team in in a Formula One team. They were the people that I watched the TV, looked at and thought, wow, that is incredible. I want to be part of that. But when I looked at that, I wanted to be part of that because I saw them as kind of hero figures. They were my stars of the show. Of course, the drivers were stars of Formula One. But when I watched it on TV, those guys bursting out of the garage in an anonymous you know, fireproof clothing, doing that amazing feat, changing wheels and tyres in just a couple of seconds. They were heroes to me. And I wanted a piece of that. I wanted to be a little bit of a star of the show. And that's an egotistical view. That's a little bit self-centred. But that's the truth. That's why I wanted to get into it. So all these years later, if I fast forward through my career, I got to Formula One. The dream came true. I spent a short amount of time on the test team and then I got promoted to the race team. 
at which point you become part of the pit stop crew. And that was it. I'd made it. In my mind, I had made it. But I was still very young. I was incredibly inexperienced in terms of pit stops. I mean, in fact, I'd never done one. The way we used to practice back then was very different to the way that we practice today. It was way too hit and miss, really, if we're honest about it. We practiced once or twice a week in the build up to a Grand Prix. And that wasn't enough. I'd done my practice in the build up to my first race, the Australian Grand Prix. The team manager had given me a role in the pit stop crew because I was young and inexperienced. He gave me a role that actually doesn't even happen very often. I was putting on the spare nose cone and front wing assembly, which only ever happens if the driver has an accident and knocks off the first one. And in all honesty, building up to that Australian Grand Prix, I was really pleased that that was a rare occurrence because having dreamt of this for years, all of a sudden I was terrified. I got to the race day, having had a disastrous practice earlier in the weekend. My driver was Kimi Räikkönen. I remember strapping him into the car on the grid, sending him on his way, having wished him luck. And then I have to head back to the garage with all of the equipment from the grid, along with all of my colleagues, to be ready in case of an early pit stop. But that's a reasonable journey, dragging all this kit. And in the meantime, the cars go round, do their green flag lap, and then the race begins. You can hear it because the noise, especially back then, was deafening. 20 cars with their engines screaming on the rev limiter as the lights go out back then was, well, 21,000 RPM they were doing back then. Mind-blowing noise, like thunder. So as they launch off the line, and I'm still rushing back to the pit lane, back to the garage, I know the race has started, even though I can't see anything. My heart rate steps up a little bit higher than it already had. And then, probably four or five seconds after the race had begun, the team manager comes on the radio and says, guys, Kimmy's had an accident at turn one. He's knocked his nose off and he's coming in for a pit stop. Get ready for a pit stop. (laughs) Now, my whole world just stopped in that moment and I absolutely panicked. I ran around like a headless chicken, imagining the disaster that I'd had in practice where I'd been tripping over, clattering into people, missing the pins on the front of the chassis when I tried to put the nose on, all sorts of stuff that had gone wrong. I was imagining my face on the back page of tomorrow's newspapers with a headline of McLaren disaster. I mean, clearly that's not what was going to happen, but that's what was rushing through my mind. I ran around, I grabbed the nose cone for Kimmy's car and ran out into the pit lane waiting and then realised I was on my own because everybody else knowing they had a bit more time while Kimmy with his broken car limped his way entirely around the racetrack slowly took about a minute and a half to get back to us in the pit lane. But I now couldn't go back into the garage. So I'm out there now in the pit lane with all of the the fireproof gear on, holding this enormous nose cone and spare front wing for Kimmy's car. And because I'm out there on my own with all that gear on, there's now a cameraman whose lens of his camera is probably 30 centimetres away from my face. And I know on the other end of that lens possibly a hundred million people, maybe more back then. In my mind, all just staring at me because I wanted to be the star of the show for all of those years. And now, yeah, I was the star of the show that were focusing on me, in my mind, all for that entire minute and a half. Again, that was never going to happen. It would have made terrible television, but my egotistical side was solely focused on me. 
and I was panicking. I was shaking like a leaf and eventually my colleagues joined me in the pit lane. Kimmy appeared at the far end of the pit lane and had to come towards us at the pit lane speed limit, which back then was 70 miles an hour, 120 kilometers an hour. I always say to people, that's like standing in the fast lane of a motorway, hoping that at the very last second, he's going to stop right there at your ankles. That's terrifying. Still to this day, well, I think the scariest thing I've ever done in my entire life, still now. And that's saying something because I've been married twice and got four kids. <laughs> it was terrifying. Anyway, to cut the story short, Kimmy screeches to a halt, stops on the mark perfectly. The guy takes the broken nose cone off and I come in with this huge, great contraption, swing it into position, line the nose up on these four pins on the front of the chassis. The guys did the catches up and I leapt out the way. I hadn't tripped over. I hadn't clattered into anybody. I hadn't missed the pins. I hadn't let go of it before the pins were done up. It was perfect. I leapt away. I bounded into the garage. I mean, like a kid at Christmas, so happy with what I had just done. It was perfect. It could not have gone any better. I leapt around the garage, pulled my balaclava off and was just grinning from ear to ear. And then I turned round to see the car was still stationary in the pit lane and it should have long gone by now. What had happened was that in my own euphoria of leaping around so happy and relieved, I'd completely missed all of this radio traffic where Kimmy had been saying when he went off and had his accident, broke the front wing, he got into a gravel trap and a tiny stone, a tiny piece of gravel had leapt up and gone down between his back and the seat of the car. Now, there's two things in Formula One. First of all, you're so tightly strapped into a seat of a Formula One car that he can't reach to get that out himself. And secondly, it's too painful for him to continue with it in there because it's such a snug fit. So now there's about 15 people clambering all over this stationary F1 car with its engine just screaming away, desperate to get back in the race, all looking for this one tiny little stone, probably no bigger than the size of a pea. Eventually, somebody found it. The pit stop, I think, lasted for about a minute, maybe longer. It was possibly McLaren's worst ever pit stop in their entire history at that point. And yet when the car screeched off back into the race with Kimi angrily at the wheel, these very grumpy, pissed off, angry and experienced race mechanics came back into the garage to find this young idiot leaping around with a huge grin on his face, just wanting to high five everybody because his little bit had gone really well. And that moment changed everything for me about the way I viewed a team and teamwork. I could have very easily made that pit stop an absolute disaster all by myself. Luckily, I didn't. But there was no way I could have made that pit stop the perfect pit stop by myself either. That would be impossible. There's no way that that can happen. My bit went really well, but the pit stop as a whole was an absolute disaster. It couldn't really have gone very much worse. And yet I was running around with this huge grin on my face, whilst everybody else had the biggest frowns that I've ever seen. They were throwing balaclavas and gloves on the floor, kicking chairs around the garage. The only way you get the perfect pit stop, 
or anything else for that matter. It's by every single person around that operation, around that process, every single piece of equipment, all the practice and preparation that went into it, working perfectly at the moment it's supposed to. Teamwork. That preparation is really what's key. And that's no different in our lives. If we want teamwork to work at its best, if we want to achieve the greatest results we can, if we want our team to perform at the highest level possible, a huge amount of preparation has to go into getting that team to work. I've been in situations where we've had brilliant groups of individuals who couldn't work well together and therefore, as a team, we failed. I mean, one of the most obvious examples of that is in 2007 at McLaren. We had Lewis Hamilton as a driver. We had Fernando Alonso, the current world champion, as our other driver. We had an incredible car. We had designed a brilliant car. We had a great set of engineers and strategists and mechanics. The team had been honed over years. We were a great bunch of people, a great, brilliant bunch of individuals. And yet in 2007, we failed massively because we could not work as a team. And it started with, it's well documented, but Lewis Hamilton, Fernando Alonso falling out massively. The knock-on effect of that was that the people around them began taking sides within our own team gathering around their own driver and seeing the other side of the garage as the absolute enemy, withholding information, taking decisions that were solely focused on their little bit of our operation rather than seeing the big picture. Lewis Hamilton's, again, well-documented, fateful trip into the gravel trap in China in 2007 with that tyre that was so worn out uh, he should not have still been running around the racetrack at that stage. That was a perfect example. The team on Lewis's side of the garage were so solely focused on beating Fernando Alonso, on outdoing them, on performing better than them. So focused on that over and above doing what they needed to do to win the world championship, which was more than in their grasp that year, that they lost focus. They made the wrong decisions because they weren't thinking as a team. We weren't collaborating as a team. We divided our team into little groups within the organisation. And there's no way you can operate at your best like that. The only way we get the best out of anything is bringing all of those people together. The power of 10 minds is clearly more powerful than just two minds working alone or one mind working alone. So I think the idea of this episode is to look at examples like that and see how they might relate to our daily lives, because it's easy to sit there and listen to this and go, well, I'm never working for a Formula One team. That doesn't apply to me. Oh, it does. <laughs> it does. I mentioned examples at the beginning of all of this, where you're a team when you're in a partnership with your other half member of your family, whether you've got kids or school or friend groups or sports teams, whatever it might be at work, you're all teams and you're all got, you've all got 
common goals in mind. That could be happiness. That could be meeting budgetary targets at work. It could be winning the cup in a football team. It could be anything. Achieving great results at school or whatever. Everybody's got goals. We can go a long way to achieving those goals with people who have great skill sets, inherent skill sets, people who have a great mentality towards success, people who have brilliant ideas, creative ideas, thinking outside the box. Those are all things that are absolutely powerful and useful. We've all got different experiences that we can draw on from days gone by in our lives. But the point is, those people around us equally have sets of skills that are massively valuable, their own unique experiences that they can draw on. So what about if all of a sudden, drawing on our own experience, if we could double that up by drawing on the experience of somebody else in our team, by tapping into those people around us as a huge resource, by sharing ideas, by questioning things, by bringing some of your problems to those people around you and getting two minds working on that challenge rather than just the one that you might have had previously. You can clearly see it becomes far more powerful. And that is exactly how a Formula One team works. So how do you get those people around you to buy into the same vision that you might have bought into? How do you get them all pushing in the same direction towards the same goals? Well, people often say that actions and commitment is reciprocated. Whatever you put out into the world comes back to you. And one really powerful, for me at least, example of that was just after I first started in Formula One, before I even got onto the race team and one of my first, I think even maybe my first ever test, my first experience of working with this elite group of people at McLaren, Drivers were Mika Hakkinen and David Coulthard, global superstars to me, people that I had looked up to for years. Even just weeks earlier, there were people that I idolised on the TV, still dreaming of ever one day setting foot in the same pit lane, let alone in the same garage and working with them. And I got sent out to the first test to learn the ropes of being a Formula One mechanic at McLaren. I was incredibly nervous. I was really quite shy. I didn't know anybody. For me, everybody else around me was an extremely high performance individual. They were the very top of their game, the best of the best in what they were doing. Should I have even been there? I was questioning my own ability, my self-belief. Did I deserve to be amongst these incredible people? And I did my best. I kept my head down. I tried to learn as much as I could. And at the end of the very first or second day of that test, a very long, long day in the garage, we'd have a break in the evening to go and have dinner where we'd walk out the back of the garage across the back of the paddock to our motorhome or our hospitality unit where we would all as a team eat dinner. It was a self-service type affair at the time. We'd go up, we'd get our plates, get our food, and then we'd have to go and look around the group of tables, find somewhere to sit. Well, I was like a new kid at school. I didn't know anybody. I'd been working with this team, of course, this crew of mechanics all day. So I looked towards them, but the table they happened to be sat at was full. 
So I sat down on the table closest to them that had space. But for a moment, I was sat there on my own. I was this little lost kid on his first day. (laughs) It's probably a very sad, sad sight. (laughs) But what happened next was somebody came and sat next to me. And it wasn't one of the other mechanics. It wasn't one of the engineers or one of the truck drivers that I might have interacted with throughout the day. It was David Coulthard. He came along, he sat on the table, just me and him, out the blue. He could have sat anywhere else. His engineers were there, his team, the people he knew on a daily basis were all dotted around this area. And yet he chose to come and sit next to me. And I can't tell you how nervous I was. (laughs) I think I was probably shaking. I didn't know what to say. Uh, I was completely socially inadequate in that moment like I was a schoolgirl meeting a pop star <laughs> but anyway we we got talking about racing and, and various other things and I asked him some probably fairly inane questions which he all very politely and duly answered for me he asked about me he spent quite a lot of time asking me about my background, where I'd come from, what I'd done before, where I lived, stuff outside of motor racing. Do I have any brothers or sisters? You know, what was my family life like? What other interests do I have? He was getting to know me. And at the end of this little meeting, this impromptu dinner that was for me like a dream come true, I turned round to David and I said, I said, DC, I hope you don't mind, but can I just ask why you came and sat next to me when you could have sat anywhere? And he said, yeah, he said, of course. He said, "Um, I came and sat to you because I didn't know you. I didn't recognise you. He said, everybody in this garage here, everybody sat around this room eating dinner are members of our team. Every single one of these people has an absolutely crucial role in making sure that the car that I drive is fast, safe, competitive. If I have got any dreams of winning a Grand Prix or winning a world championship, he said, I can't do that on my own. I said, I need every single one of you to be at the very best of your game, pushing as hard as you can, just like I am when I'm in the car. He said, to do that, I need to know who you are. He said, you're my teammate. When he said, you're my teammate, I mean, my, my eyes welled up, my heart filled, I puffed my chest out, I suddenly became massively proud, I had a sense of absolutely deserving my position in that team, all of a sudden, just in that one moment. And from that one moment, I felt an absolute desire to do the best that I could for DC and whoever my driver was at any given moment. I went on in the same conversation to say, you know, DC, over the last couple of weeks, I've been in the factory, you know, you won't have have seen me because I know you've been really busy and you're not there that often, but he said, the couple of occasions I've seen you come in, I said, I noticed that you've spent an awful lot of time wandering around the factory, going into obscure areas, talking to people, spending a lot of time with people, signing autographs, having photos taken. I said, that's an amazingly kind thing to do. I said, I can't believe that you've got time to do that. And he said to me, I haven't got time not to do that. He said, my career in Formula One is 
relatively short. He said, I know that. For the same reason I came and sat next to you, I spend time getting to know the people in the factory, going to talk to them, knowing, letting them know that I am pushing the, the hardest I can relentlessly to get our car across the finish line first. He said, if I show them that I am committing to that level, I know that they are far more likely to give that same level of commitment back. That's how we build a great team. Those couple of moments with DC, with me as just a young kid, like a rabbit in the headlights in my first experience of Formula One were game changing, which is exactly what DC set out for them to achieve. And it worked. <laughs> so that's how we get people to buy into the project. If we as a team leader or member of that team are willing to commit to achieve a goal, we believe in that goal and we need the people around us to believe in it and commit as well. Whether that's your family or your work colleagues or your football teammates or whatever. The way you start that process is by example. You show them how much you are willing to commit, how dedicated you are to the cause. You show them what can be achieved by stepping up a level. The other thing that is crucially important that I've learned from Formula One when you are building a high performing team, trying to challenge the people around you, push them to a level that you know your competitors or the people that you're trying to outperform are not going to, levels that they couldn't possibly be going to. If you're trying to get people to give that level of commitment, you've got to appreciate that these people are just human beings. It's one of the much overlooked aspects of Formula One. Because Formula One is such a technical sport, we focus so much on the cars, the technology underneath the skin of the cars, the technology around pit stops, the tyres, the engines, the gearbox, the aerodynamics of a car. Who's got the best? Who's come up with a new trick this week that might give them a bit of extra performance? So much is focused on that that I often feel we overlook the fact that these technical, technically brilliant ideas, they've all come from human beings. Formula One is a human sport, perhaps one of the biggest human sports. It's made up of a group of human beings. So if we want to build an incredible culture of high performance within our team or within our environment around us. Yes, we need great people. Yes, we need to give them the resources to be able to operate at their best. We need to believe in them. Most importantly, we need to understand that they're human, that they have good days and bad days. They have strengths and weaknesses. And this is no different to you and I every single day of our lives looking at the people closest to us who we may well think we know inside out. Do we really? I've got four children of varying stages of life. Yep, four. <laughs> They're all brilliant human beings. I feel like I know them inside out, like the back of my hand. But there must be days when they're going through something at school or at work or within their friend groups that might be troubling, might be challenging. 
something that's slightly out of the ordinary that could absolutely and will absolutely affect their performance, affect their behaviours, affect the characteristics that they display on any given day. And that's the same in any team environment. Understanding the people around you is absolutely how you get the best out of them. And to come back to a Formula One example of that, I think we can look at the two perhaps biggest teams in the sport right now, Mercedes and Ferrari. Both of those teams have a huge budget, an almost unrestrictive budget over the last few years. They've all got huge numbers of people, brilliant people, massive resource, incredible factories and facilities at their disposable. Both of those teams have had some amazing drivers over recent years. And yet only one of those teams has had relentless and sustained success. So what's the difference? It's the people. It's the people, but it's also how one team treats its people. It's the environment that it's created for its people to thrive within. Mercedes absolutely has nailed the culture within their organisation to a point where people within that framework are empowered to thrive. They're empowered to use their own skill sets to get the very best out of whatever it is they're trying to achieve. Ferrari, you might look at as the opposite end of that spectrum. Have they created an environment there which is so pressurised, so pressurised from an outside perspective, both from their own fan base, the media, but also from their own management? Are people within that Ferrari organisation afraid to take crucial decisions? Are they afraid to take a little bit of a risk at times through fear of reprisal if they get it wrong? Have they got an organisation or a culture that understands the individual strengths and weaknesses of those people within it? I mean, looking from the outside, I would say probably not. Have Mercedes? Absolutely. One of the things that I always tell corporate clients when I go and do corporate talks about this kind of thing is that a label can be highly restrictive. If you label somebody with a job title, that can be a massively restrictive thing if you restrict them to whatever their job title says. Because the point is that a Formula One team is this group of amazing individuals that have a huge variety of experience for many years, maybe at your own team, maybe from other teams as well, and other categories of racing before that, and from just life. A thousand people with 20, 30, 40 years of life experience is a massive resource. If you don't tap into that resource, there is no way you can maximise your own ability as a team. Mercedes do that very well. They allow somebody from the design department to question something that might be happening in the R&D department or in the mechanical department or in the simulation department. Likewise, a race mechanic can come along and question a design, can put forward a suggestion that might actually be a better design because they're the ones working on the car. 
their strengths, the technical understanding of actually what they're doing on a daily basis. Can they get a spanner in or a ratchet in to adjust the piece that's just been designed? Or perhaps, given their hands-on experience with that part, they can suggest something different. Now that might seem obvious, but if your culture doesn't allow the mechanic to go to the design department and say, look, have you thought about doing it this way? And if it doesn't allow the design department to be open enough to appreciate the skills and experience of that mechanic, you are never going to get the very best Formula One car or the very best operation that you can. Understanding the people in your organization is key. What are their strengths, but also what are their weaknesses? In your own family, there might be members of your family that have particular strengths. In a partnership, a husband and wife partnership, quite common. One of those people might have a great set of skills in one area, but might be weak in other areas. They Maybe they, they suffer with stress or maybe they struggle to deal with pressure. Whereas the other one perhaps is very good at that aspect, but struggles on a more practical level or a creative level. Work together. You've got the perfect set of skills that if you combine them, you come up with the very best potential outcome. If you work on your own as two individuals, you've both got weaknesses. It seems so obvious But my experience of going into corporate clients, the corporate world, is that so many big, powerful organisations do not do this well. I mean, one final example I want to leave you with was, might make you laugh, but when I worked with Lewis Hamilton, he was at the time going out in a relationship with Nicole Scherzinger, pop star. And the relationship that they were having away from the track, their personal relationship was a little bit up and down. You know, there were moments when they were very publicly falling out or they'd split up. And there was a very definite correlation as far as we could see as a team, because it was very clear in the data and the results that when their relationship was on a downward trajectory, when it was at a low point, Lewis's performance was very clearly correlated to that. His performance was equally at a low point. And I remember joking about it at the time, but when Lewis then left McLaren and went on to Mercedes with the relationship with Nicole still very much intact, but still on this tumultuous, spiky line, if you drew it on a graph, I remember chatting to my mates at the Mercedes team who had come to the very quick conclusion that there was more performance to be gained within that Mercedes operation by keeping Lewis and Nicole together, keeping them happy than there was with anything they could do with a car. (laughs) That was very much a tongue-in-cheek comment, but the message is very clear. People have good days and they have bad days, well away from anything you might see in your workplace or on the football pitch or at school. They don't tell you about all of the things that are going on in their life. In that moment, we were able to see, because Lewis was this global star, it was very well documented. For everybody else in that organisation, they're much more unlikely to come and tell you they've had a massive breakup with somebody at home. They've had a massive argument with their wife or husband that morning before coming into the office. But if you can find that out, if you can be a bit understanding of that, 
perhaps you can have a lot more understanding of what they're able to do on that particular day. Perhaps their strengths and weaknesses have changed on that particular day to normal. Maybe they need a little bit more space to breathe to allow them to flourish and get the best out of whatever it is they need to achieve in that particular day. If you push them as a leader in the same way you might have on a day when everything was great in their personal lives, you're likely to get a very different result. It's no different with our kids when they have a bad day at school. It's no different with our teammates on the sports field, work colleagues, husbands and wives. We're all just people who have a thing in our head, a brain, a mind that is beyond scientific control. In Formula One, we love to engineer everything to be underneath our control. But we have emotions. We have characters. We have personalities that are affected by so many more things. And if you want to build the ultimate high-performing elite team to get the very best results out of whatever it is you want to set out to achieve, all of those elements need to be taken into account. We need to understand the people. We need to get the right people. We need to coach them and train them in the right way. We need to show them what we want by leading from example. And we need to understand that they are human, that they have strong points and weak points and that their job title doesn't necessarily and shouldn't define them as the only thing they can do. Yes, they may be very good at that particular skill, but if we tap into the resource that is everything else stored away in their mind, inside their experiences, we can all become far more powerful together. The power of teamwork. I will leave you with this quote, which I think sums up teamwork in whichever environment you want to apply it to in the very best way. It comes from the American philanthropist and businessman, Andrew Carnegie. And he says, teamwork is the ability to work together toward a common vision, the ability to direct individual accomplishments towards organizational objectives. And this bit I think is crucial. It is the fuel that allows common people to attain uncommon results. That last line for me sums things up. We can achieve so much on our own. Some people can achieve amazing things on their own. But even a gold medalist who competes in an individual event, they are not doing that by themselves. They couldn't do it by themselves because everybody else would have a team of people working with them, working alongside them to help them achieve those goals. No matter who you see as a brilliant individual in the world, somebody who might have attained incredible success, somebody you might look up to as being an amazing businessman, a friend, a sportsman, a pop star, whatever it is, none of them did it by themselves. The most successful people in the world understand teamwork. And I hope that some of these lessons that I've talked about from the pit lane in Formula One might help you guys to understand the power of teamwork as well and take it away to apply to some of the things you might be doing. Some of the mundane things, seemingly mundane things you might be doing every single day. Teamwork is not just an elite sport thing. It's not just an elite 
business thing or a corporate thing. It's a human thing. Well, that's it. That's episode one kind of done. Normally each week at this point in the episode, I will come back a week later after recording this. And what I want to do at this point is to go through some of your comments, some of your questions. And that's why I really want your feedback. As I said at the beginning, I'd love you to leave a comment wherever it is you're listening or watching. Leave a review and rate the podcast. I'd really appreciate it. It makes a huge difference to me. But I'm also going to use that feedback to complete the last part of each episode. So for around about 15 minutes at the end, which will bring each episode up to about an hour, which I hope will work for you, we're going to look at your comments and questions, the feedback, the things you've responded to having listened to it. And I want to take those on board. I want to read them out. I want to give you my response to your questions. I want to use them as further talking points around the same subject. I want to hear what you took away from the episode because I think it will really add some value and also will help us to generate some more content based on what you think of what I'm saying. It will help me shape the way this thing goes off in the future, which direction it goes. I think when it comes to this episode, teamwork, I've listened to it all back now, and that's the other point. I want to listen to this back days or a week after recording it so that I get a different perspective, so that I can reflect on what I said first time around. I might be able to add something else or respond to something I've said with the viewpoint of having another week to, to look back on it. And when I looked at this episode, I mean, I'll be honest, I certainly don't want to appear smug, but I'm quite happy with it. I think the idea of teamwork is something that Formula One teams are so good at in the modern era. Not always, and certainly not all teams, as I said, but the idea of building a high-performing, elite, successful team is something that we can all benefit from. And it really does centre around building trust into that team, trusting the people around you first of all, are good at whatever it is you're asking them to do, whatever you need them to do, whether it's family members or members of your team at work. Trusting, like we do in the sense of a pit stop, that the guy next to me is going to do exactly what I need him to do at exactly the right moment that I need him to do it, because that's going to enable me to do my thing at exactly the right time and in exactly the right way. So teamwork is about building all of those pieces together to get the perfect outcome. And that is only something that we can achieve with a huge amount of input, with a huge amount of effort and preparation. It doesn't happen overnight. You have to start building the blocks early. If you think about Mercedes, they've built their success over a number of years. If you think about anybody who's been a high achiever in life, it didn't come at day one. They've built up to that moment probably over many, many years. Many of those years you will not even be aware of. Many of those years may have been outside of public life or out of the limelight. You may not have been aware of the efforts, the sacrifices that went into building the team that ultimately generated the performance that we now celebrate. And that is a really important message to take away from this. The sacrifice or the things that are going on behind closed doors are not always the same things that we see. Social media is a great example of that. People are only ever posting the really good bits, not the tough bits, not the dark days. And if we want to get a great team of people together as a leader of those teams or a member of those teams, we need to have an appreciation that each individual person within that team, no matter how good they are at their job, still have 
tough moments. They are still human. This teamwork thing, as I said at the end of the first part of the episode, is a human thing. It's not specific to any one industry or walk of life. And I hope that that's what you will take away from this. As we move forward, and I'll be back next week with another episode, in each of these episodes, I want to take an element of the way a Formula One team operates or the Formula One industry operates. I want to take something that Formula One does extremely well that I firmly believe can be applied to our daily lives. And that is exactly what this entire podcast series is going to be about. I would really love your input, as I say, your feedback, uh, your comments and your reviews, as well as this episode. I want to know when I start bringing guests onto the podcast, who you'd like to hear from? Who would you like to hear their story from inside Formula One that you think you and the people that are listening to this might benefit from? So please do rate, review the podcast, leave me a comment on YouTube, subscribe to the channel, give it a thumbs up, whatever it is, it will take a moment. I will really, really appreciate it. And it might just feature in next week's episode and help shape the direction we all go together. Have a great week, guys. I will see you back here very, very soon. Ta-da.